This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portia. My name's Andrew Carroll. And today we are talking about loyal AFC Richmond supporter, Juno Temple. That was a Ted Lasso reference <laughs> for all you non-Lasso heads out there. Andrew, run down her history. Juno Temple was born in Hammersmith, London in 1989. She's the daughter of documentary, film and music video director Julian Temple. Her first major film was in her father's film Pandemonium in 2000. Six years later, she appeared in Notes on a Scandal opposite Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett. Her breakthrough came in 2007 with roles in Joe Wright's Atonement and in the comedy St. Trinian's. She played Jane Boleyn in 2008's The Other Boleyn Girl and appeared in five films in 2009. Temple has often switched between mainstream roles as well as more independent pictures throughout her career. For instance, in 2012, she appeared in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, as well as the independent films Brass Teapot, Small Apartments and Jack and Diane, as well as William Friedkin's final fiction feature, Killer Joe. She has also worked with Steven Soderbergh, Robert Rodriguez, Woody Allen and Thomas Vinterberg. On TV, Temple is best known for Ted Lasso and The Offer. She will later appear in the lead role of Dot in the fifth season of the FX Network's Fargo. Yeah. What Rodriguez movie is she in? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I was just curious. Um, oh, have... Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. Oh, of course. Yep, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it was my idea to cover Juno Temple. I think ever since I saw her in Killer Joe for the first time, I've been following her career. Just very impressed by her versatility as an actress. Like, I, I don't think mm. every performer could effortlessly move from playing this kind of like I don't know prim and proper teenager in a 1930s set British drama like Atonement to mm. playing these very dark characters with like thick southern accents in quite lurid current day thrillers like Killer Joe and Unsane uh, but also like to being one of the MVPs on a like very beloved hit sitcom mm. like yeah, Ted Lasso true. and uh I won't talk about it too much in depth as it's been about nine months since the second season wrapped up so it's not hugely fresh in my head but like Temple's so good on Ted Lasso as Keely, this um, who starts off the series as this model and who is the girlfriend of this kind of vain young footballer named Jamie Tart. Do 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 Jamie Tart. Um, <laughs> and obviously, the writers used real life famous wags, as the tabloids say, as an inspiration for where a character begins. But like literally, instantly, Temple just makes Keely so breezy, charming, and funny. She's literally like a ray of light in the show, and she gets this great arc in that. Her character over the course of the series reveals herself as being very ambitious in terms of her career and resourceful and she has a lot more depth than it might first appear which is kind of the strength of Ted Lasso. I feel like every one of the main characters on the show is like that and I, I feel like I had to talk about Ted Lasso because like I feel like it's the role Temple would get most recognized for on the street which is so funny to me given mm. that like I think in film circles she'd be known for appearing in more like edgy almost experimental movies like Greg Araki's movie Kaboom mm. which um, to be fair she's very fun in playing this kind of free-spirited college student but like also Magic Magic which we'll talk about later and on in more depth but that's a very intense performance so I think she takes on a lot of different roles in interesting products and from what I've seen of her like I don't think she really misses ever yeah that's true yeah um, but what, what do you think about her? I think she's great I think I like how she kind of chooses well I guess Ted Lasso would be the exception uh, out of the stuff we've watched for this but a lot of her characters kind of aren't very likable or sympathetic. Uh, well, not necessarily sympathetic, but like, even with her character in Magic Magic, you're like, oh, I'm, I feel sorry for her, but I w really wouldn't want to be around her. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Also, I think what's, we, we should point out, like, what's fun about this episode is that we've watched all the same movies, mm. which is pretty, I don't think it's ever happened. 
I don't think so, no. And um, it means that probably we're we'll covering less movies, but we can get into a, a bit more of a dialogue mm. about them than yeah. usual. So, um, yeah, do you want to start off with Atonement? Sure. So, Juno Temple plays Lola Quincy, the 15-year-old cousin of Cecilia Tallis, uh, played by Kieran Knightley, and Bryony Tallis, played by Saoirse Ronan, who falsely acclu- accuses the groundskeeper Robbie Turner, played by James McAvoy, of rape, which sends him to prison until 1939, where he's um, recruited out of prison into the army uh, because there's a war on. And uh, things basically go to hell from there for um, poor Cecilia and uh, Robbie. Now what you're going to do? I'm always asking myself that. My name's Paul Marshall. You must be the uh, cousins from the north. What are your names? Piero. Jackson. (laughs) Marvellous names. (laughs) Do you know our parents? Well, I've read about them in the paper. What exactly have you read about them? Oh, you know. Usual sort of nonsense. (laughs) I'll thank you not to talk about this in front of the children. Your parents are absolutely wonderful people, that's quite clear. They love you and think about you all the time. Jolly nice slacks. We went to see a show and I got them at Liberty's. What was the show? Hamlet. Ah, yes. To be or not to be. (laughs) I like your shoes. What do you think of Atonement? Masterpiece. It's really, yeah. really good. I'd never seen it before. Me neither. Because I'd watched Joe Wright's first film, Pride and Prejudice, which I actually like more than Atonement, a few weeks before this. And that's, like, incredible. Oh, it's good. Yeah, it's I, yeah I've always heard it's, it's good. It's so good. But yeah. yeah. And then he made, went on and made Pam. And, but Hannah, Hannah's pretty... Ha- Hannah slaps. Hannah slaps, yeah. yeah. Darkest, is it Darkest Hour? That yeah. was the latest one? Pff, miss me. Who won an Oscar for Gary Ullman, though? He's won an Oscar before. No, he hasn't. Oh. Gary Oldman? He should have won an Oscar before. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. For true romance. But, um, yeah, odd career, because he made that movie The Woman in the Window on Netflix, which is pretty yeah. awful. Yeah. yeah, so I hear. But um, I just think a story beat that always messes me up, no matter what the movie is, is two people who have yearned for each other for years and only decide to get together just as it's too late. Because yeah. you kind of think about, like, oh, all the waste of time, though. Yeah. Like, it stings, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, Tomlin is a bit like that, because you have this Kieran Knightley character, Cecilia, who is part of this wealthy family, and... Her family's housekeeper's son, Robbie, who's the James McAvoy, they have this kind of unspoken love for each other and they've never acted on it, even when they were in university together for years because of a, he was being seen as kind of lower class. Mm. And then the very night they act on their feelings, everything goes wrong. They're torn apart. And like he's arrested for this crime he didn't commit. Mm. And then that's over like a misunderstanding, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And then he's given the choice, you know, jail or fight in World War II. And just, just it's hard not to be emotionally invested in that story, mm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. But what, what do you think makes Tomant rise above kind of similar, these kind of, I don't know, period dramas? Because there's a lot of these sort of yeah, British true. movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, attention to detail. Yeah. Craft. I think Wright has such like a, an aptitude for scale and form and colour, all while centering these incredibly romantic and human stories and these like either grand portraits or landscapes. If you take an example of like h- how good this guy can be once he has the right material um, to work off, um, then the like five minutes six minutes seven minutes tracking shot in atonement in the middle where acton kirk is like oh this 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 is this guy in microcosm essentially i think Mm. yeah Yeah, for sure um i also think it's really cool um the little tricks right does to sort of translate the themes of the novel into the screen i must say i haven't read the novel but uh, but i've I've read some e mccune so he's a very good writer but um I feel like this is a story that's really well suited for literature because it's about writing and mm. storytelling and the power of words, yeah. you know? And I think he makes that like work as like a piece of cinema because like, you know, you know early on we're shown 
Bryony, um, Cicerone's character's perspective of she observes out a window what looks like a very odd intense scene involving her sister Cecilia and Robbie, her housekeeper, and it looks like they're fighting and that he forces her to remove some of her clothes and like mm. jump into a fountain and you're with Bryony. Like it looks troubling, yeah, you know? Yeah. And but then without signposting it, in the very next scene, you see the same event from Cecilia and Robbie's perspective. And you don't realize you're seeing it until they're at the fountain, kind yeah. of. And it's actually so innocent, yeah, the, what yeah. they're doing. And I think it's a technique the movie does a few times in different ways, showing viewers one person's perspective on events before revealing that person's account to be not entirely reliable or not true at mm. all, you know? Yeah. And um, there's other cool little tricks, like the score includes sounds of a typewriter, which gives the movie sort of this kind of pacey rhythm, but yeah. like makes the act of writing part of its DNA because the reason Brini blames Robbie is because she saw this letter that, yeah, you know, you watch the movie. When that word <laughs> flashes up on the screen, it's it's a great joke. That, great yes, gag. that's why I want to bring that up next. But also, um, like, Brini is a, a playwright yeah. and part of the wraparound story is like she's working on this novel called Atonement. Mm. Um, but also, like, there's that close-up Bright does, which the movie comes back to a few times, on the page as Robbie types the letter in which he describes his sexual desire for Cecilia where he uses a particularly vulgar word mm. which comes back to bite him. No points for guessing what. Yes, <laughs> because he, he, he typed it up as a joke and did not intend to send it, but it got mixed up with the more formal letter he'd written for Cecilia and then mm. Brini reads the vulgar word causing this whole chain of events. But when Robbie types a full stop at the end of the sentence where he uses that certain word, writes zeros in so much that you can see the ink indent the page mm, yeah and the full stop kind of looks like a bullet hole yeah and it's like such a harbinger of doom but a smart way of kind of showing that like yeah words can hit hard you know yeah. what i mean and um yeah just i really like the first third of the movie or first half where you're like zipping through the estate and you're meeting all these like different characters like like juno temple's character yeah. lola and paul the chocolate baron played by benedict cumberbatch yes oh <laughs> It might be my favorite Benedict Cumberbatch performance. Yeah, yeah. Because he's the minute you Even show if the up, the character is like, ugh, just he just changes the tone of the scene. Instantly. Exactly, and like he can be very charming, and then he'll say something, and you're like, oh, why did oh, that make dear. my yeah. my spine tingle? Like, why am I feel chilled to yeah, my core? Yeah. Um, I found that a little bit the after that part of the movie a little jarring because that all takes place over one day essentially, yeah. the first like third or half of the movie, and mm -hmm. then it goes through transverses like years and it's like flashing between the war and like what the characters have been doing in the intervening mm. years but then that that scene that you mentioned on the the battlefield is so good yeah and then it finds its rhythm again i find i think the ending with vanessa redgrave as the older brini is mm. like such a beautiful it ties everything together it's such a great yeah. capper to the story what do you think of temple in this um well very limited in in fairness um but what one thing i do find interesting is that uh brini is played by um or Bryony, who cares, is played by um, three different actresses across uh, across the film. So there's Saoirse Ronan, um, Romola Garay, Romola Garay and Vanessa Redgrave. And, you know, obvi obviously this, char this character grows up because the story takes place over years. But it is kind of interesting in that uh, they could have hired... Uh, uh, Juno Temple plays Bryony when she's 15 and then four years later when she's 19. Um, or not Bryony. Lola, Lola, Lola yeah. Quincy. Yeah. And I think at that stage, obviously, because Sir Ronan was only like 13 or something, um, whereas Juno Temple would have been a good bit older. I think, I think she's like 18 or 18 19. or something. Yeah. yeah. And um, but it is interesting how it's kind of like she's still she's still playing her when she's 19, which is fair enough because she's similar age at that point. But um, it kind of shows how like, oh, this girl never really got the chance to 
finish growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's why I I, I think... Um, Maybe this, I'm reading too much into it. No, but no. I think it's... I agree, because that's kind of my take on it, because, like, Lola is, like, you mentioned Brini and Cece's cousin and staying with them, along with her younger brothers, because their parents are having issues. Seems like they're going through a divorce. Mm, yeah. And I think she makes Lola feel very lived in, even when she has very little screen time. And mm. I think that's a thing that Temple does a lot in the movies that we've covered for this. Yeah. But um, I think you get a real sense on one level that she's just a kid, like just like a regular teenage girl that happens to have this privileged upbringing because like there's that... She and Saoirse Ronan's character, Brini, at first have this sort of frenemy relationship. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. There's, that, there's that funny scene where Brini is trying to stage the play she's written and Lola gets involved and sort of strong arms Brini, Brini to let her be the lead in the play. Lola says like, oh, do say yes. It'll be the first decent thing to happen to me in months. And Brini's like, okay. But you can tell she's kind of pissed off. Mm. Like Brini wanted to be the lead. And then Temple's Lola says like, I suppose we should start rehearsing by reading it. And Brini like snaps back and is like, if you're going to be the lead, then I'll be the director. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Lola's like, mm, sorry. And then kind of does this cheeky little smile. Like the character's funny. Mm. You know, and then I think it's funny. But they later kind of become friends because like Brini shows Lola the letter. Or tells her about it. Mm. And Lola has that reply where he's like, he's a sex maniac. <laughs> um, but also there's a sense that like she's a 15-year-old pretending to be more mature than she is. Because yeah. like obviously there's all this stuff happening with her parents. And she has to act like a bit of an adult around her twin brothers. Like there's the bit where one of the twins says to Brini like, oh, I hate plays. And Lola's <laughs> like, you'll be in this play or you'll get a clout. We're guests in this house. And what did our parents say we have to make ourselves? And the brothers are like, amenable. <laughs> <laughs> But um, they they continue to be little jerks, the brothers, and there's that kind of a nice little emotional scene later when Temple's Lola cries in front of Cicerone and Scarabrini, and she says, like, she's talking about the brothers, and they're like, they want to go home. They think it's me that's keeping them there or here. Um, and I do think, like, the movie is obviously centered around this tragic romance between Keira Knightley's Cecilia and James McAvoy's Robbie, but... And we should probably give it a spoiler warning and a bit of a trigger warning here too. But like Juno Temple's character, Lola's arc is really devastating too. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, like later that night, she she is the person who's raped. Mm. And although Brini Cicerone's character stopped it once she discovered it was happening, the perpetrator fled the scene. And Brini didn't get a good look at him. Neither did Lola. But Brini testifies it was Robbie based on that letter where I used the vulgar word. And mm. she, as a thirteen-year-old, she was so repulsed by it. Yeah. And so Robbie goes to jail. And What's devastating is that later in life, Brini, who's now played by Garai, realizes it was Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Paul, who was Temple's character's rapist. Yeah. But by that point, he and Lola have married. Right. Yeah. And the only other time we see Lola after the area section of the movie is on her wedding day that Brini attends. And Lola, as she's walking past Brini, just blanks her. And it's left ambiguous if if it's because, like, maybe she just associates Brini with that awful event in her past. Or if Brini maybe had tried to warn her that it was her husband. Yeah. That was a rapist. But just in that brief moment, Lola's energy is like totally different to the way she was earlier in the movie. And, yeah. you know, she was so full of life. But in that later scene, she's not even smiling on her wedding day. Yeah. You know, and yeah. like it, it's fundamentally changed her life, that event. And um, I think she managed to get all that across Temple in like a, a handful of scenes. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it does linger. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's only like her third on screen credit as well, which is like. It's really impressive. She's like uh, on the same level, even with little screen time, as like Saoirse Ronan yeah. or who's obviously, she was obviously very young in the movie but got Oscar nominated, but like Kira Knightley and like she fits right in yeah. to these like very established actors. Mm. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we move on to Killer Joe. Yeah. 
Um, so set in this very poor area of Texas, Killer Joe centers on a drug dealer in his 20s named Chris, played by Emile Hirsch, whose life is in danger due to a debt he owes. So he goes to his father Ansel, played by Thomas Hayden Church, for help. And yeah, Ansel lives in this trailer park home with his wife and Chris's stepmom, Sharla, who's Gina Gershon. And um, Chris and Ansel basically come up with a plan to have Chris's biological mother and Ansel's ex-wife killed in order to collect her life insurance, of which they believe um, Chris's sister Dottie, Jonah Temple, is the sole beneficiary. So Chris and Ansel hire Joe Cooper, Matthew McConaughey, a police detective who moonlights as a hitman to carry out the murder. However, as Joe seeks a retainer before he commits the act, Chris and Ansel agree to let him have Dottie, mm. who Joe seems very attracted to yeah. um, as the retainer. And from there, as usual with these type of stories, um, yeah, things do not go according to plan. No, not at all. A tuna casserole. Yes. May I serve Please. Thank you. Mm. I'd really like to see that dress. It wasn't right. May I see it anyway? How are you going to kill my mama? Oh, that's not appropriate dinner conversation, Donnie. Unless you poison her. <laughs> Maybe the detective who investigates? Probably not. Sometimes. Is that a problem? That's a convenience. We should probably start with your opinion on this because um, when I pitched Temple to you, the Killer Joe of it all seemed to make you excited. And you've written about Killer Joe for Headstuff in your incredible article about the Mad Men of William Freakin. <laughs> Thanks. Of his William Freakin's oeuvre. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what do you think of... Did you revisit it, watch it again? I did, this? yeah. yeah. Um, man, that movie is filthy. It is, it's yeah. really grimy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, you come out of it wanting to shower. Or even if you take the disc out of the tray, if you've got it on DVD or Blu-ray, you want to just kind of scrape the shit off the disc into the bin. <laughs> um... But yeah, it's one of these movies that, that are quite rare, uh, understandably so, because if every movie was like this, not a lot of people would go to the cinema. Um, everything is dirty, filthy, grimy. It, it looks like like there's either if if there's clouds, then it's it's gonna feel really humid. If there's no clouds, then you'll probably go blind if you look at the sun. It's clouds. There's lightning. You yeah, know yeah, mean? yeah. It feels like everything is just like that extra bit of heat is added by like refinery fires or something like that it's like real like ugly southern gothic mm. shit yeah and um it's obviously it's based on a play mm. of the same by name Tracy Letts by yeah like <laughs> beloved character himself, actor yeah. but, a, uh, but at one point um provocateur yeah. playwright um it's like a, it's like a crime comedy but one with like a really like long mean streak yeah um it is very funny it is very yeah, funny. That's yeah. true. We'll get into it. But I think it's funny in a way where it's like, you think you know how despicable these characters are and then they go down another level yeah, yeah. and then the movie has a lot of fun in terms of like them getting their just desserts. Exactly, you know? yeah. But um, Were you aware of this? I'm never aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thomas Hayden Church is maybe like... Obviously, McConaughey isn't doing incredible work. June Temple's doing incredible work. They have really, like, fleshed their characters. Thomas Hayden Church as Comic Relief is, like, kind of the MVP, though, isn't Unbelievable, he? yeah. Just the <laughs> where he's, like, picking up a thread in his shoulder and his entire sleeve falls off. <laughs> so uh, he's about to meet a lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, like, this play has been cited as being part of that kind of in-your-face theatre movement, which was a term coined by this theatre critic, Alexi Sayers, to describe playwrights, generally young ones, 
writing kind of vulgar, shocking, confrontational material for the stage mm. as a means of uh, provoking a reaction in their audiences. And I think the movie adaptation retains that shock factor because mm. like it got the NC, the US rating, NC-17, yeah. when it came out and like has a lot of nudity in this movie. This very violent, splattery climax. Um, there's a very disturbing scene to watch involving a KFC chicken drumstick <laughs> um, that we won't discuss too much in depth but like mm. read about it online at your peril yeah. you know um, but uh, yeah I do think though like to Let's' credit that, and he wrote the screenplay for the movie too mm. that while there's a lot of elements to Kurojo that are like are out there and like Utre its characters are very compelling very much so yeah and even even if you don't like them like yeah. and like I think all of them apart from Dottie are despicable yeah it's kind of just seeing oh can they get away with this yeah yeah and it gets a lot of delirious fun out of like the character's lack of morals and then kind of punishing them yeah, for that yeah and um oh another i wrote this down. another scene i love with um thomas hayden church is um he's watching monster trucks at some point on the tv <laughs> yeah. and he's like hope he brought a spare yeah. <laughs> he's just there he's just sitting there like uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but also, like this movie is directed by William Friedkin. Mm. We've got we, yeah. we've got to talk William about William the Freak Friedkin, <laughs> probably most famous for directing The Exorcist, but um, helmed some of the best crime thrillers ever, like mm. French Connection, To Live and Die in L.A. and Sorcerer. Mm. And I think he makes this theater adaptation feel very cinematic, and mm. just those kind of grimy, kind of impoverished environments feel very really palpable. Gorgeous shots, like that beginning with the um, cars driving on the road in the dark, and then like lightning just like illuminates the yeah. sky, really nice. And then I think it cuts to like a trash can on fire in the rain. You're like, yeah, this is the vibe of the movie. Yeah, yeah perfectly sets it up. Yeah. And um, I think like all frequent crime theories, even the ones less critically regarded that I like, like Jade and The Hunted, Killer Joe has an awesome chase sequence. That scene of um, Chris being chased yeah, on foot by the yeah. motorbikes is pretty yeah. good. That is um, really good. Um, and I have my boys here kick the shit out of you. I love how nice his loan shark is. Yeah, yeah. But then he's like, so here's what's going to happen. Mm. I have the quote. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'm going to have my boys here kick the shit out of you, but if you don't get me my money in the next couple of days, I'm going to wrap you in electrical tape and bury you 10 feet deep. Yeah, which is so chilling. But yeah. right up until that point, he's like, so how have you been? Yeah. You know, like, um, <laughs> you still know that girl with the big old caboose on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I dig this movie. It's really scuzzy. Um, I will say, despite its extreme nature, it's weirdly the movie out of the four we watch for this that has the most positive ending for a tempo character. Would you agree? Yes. I think yeah, that's funny, definitely. right? Because, yeah, yeah. like, Atonement's uh, the other one, and, like, that, that's not happy. No, no. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's strange, because um, I think outside of, like, The Exorcist, women don't feature very heavily in a lot of Friedkin's films. The big ones, anyway. I suppose you're right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's weird that for what is essentially his, probably his last film... Um, it is it is it's a good decision to make uh, it as positive as it can like i think um the film is like it captures a moment in time and uh, it's kind of up to you it's this it has an ambiguous ending and it's kind of up to you to imagine what happens after that but um yeah it's uh, and it, as dotty like goes on through the film she kind of gets more confident because she can she finally meets someone that likes her for her in killer joe weirdly enough yeah um and maybe she finally sees a way out through either Joe or his gun. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Because um, I think what, what I really like about her in this movie is that she's pre- presented throughout the movie as being a bit of a wild card. Yeah. Before yeah. ultimately... It's never clear if she's clinically insane or has like some kind of sixth sense. Exactly, if yeah. she's some kind of supernatural creature. Sure, because like at cer- certain points she's very innocent. 
Like mm-hmm. there's that scene where you know she tells Charlotte about the first boyfriend she had when she was a kid, and the more Charlotte asks questions about it, the more you realize like, oh yeah, she wasn't a boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. Um, like she's childlike in those scenes, but then at other moments she's like quite matter of fact to like a chilling degree because mm-hmm. like Chris and Ansel intend at first to like shield Dottie from the plan to kill Dottie's biological mother, mm. but Dottie immediately realizes their plan and like, it pops out of nowhere like as if she had a sort of sixth sense yeah. and is like, uh, heard y'all talking about killing mama. I think it's a good idea. And then just like leaves the room. Yeah. And then they turn to each other and say, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think she's rightfully disturbed at first of the idea of being handed over mm. to Joe. Yeah. But not only does she appear to very quickly fall for him, but she never seems too perturbed by um, Joe's second job as a hitman. Yeah. Like she that, she's very accepting of that. Mm. And then also just she seems like completely in her own world sometimes. Like um, like Erdi always here sleepwalking and she comes over to Chris and Ansel when they're in the car and just starts talking gibberish. Mm. And Chris plays along with it and we're not kind of sure if it's like a running joke that they have or whatever. And mm. then like she leaves and Chris is like, that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, but I think in a lesser actor, those, those sort of shifts in Dottie's vibe might feel jarring, but I think Temple plays in a very canny way in mm. that she'll perform certain scenes kind of oddly chipper or upbeat. Like when um, Joe says he's a detective and she's like, ooh, like Magnum P.I. <laughs> um, but she'll play other scenes like really agitated and intense, like when she's crying on her bed as Joe comes over for dinner before he coaxes her out of her room with that Southern charm that mm. Matthew Kane can do when... Um, I grew up looking at Oklahoma. <laughs> when, he's, when Joe isn't being a psychopath, yeah. like he can be pretty i don't know charismatic yeah. i guess i don't know charming charismatic uh, yeah also like there's that scene d- during the chicken leg scene like it cuts to her in her room and she's talking quietly i think to like a doll or something mm. and she's like we have to go it's suffocating me i can't be around them anymore and you're like yeah i get it yeah. <laughs> but um just the bit where they're during the chicken leg scene and he turns to Thomas Hayden Church and he's to and asks him i can't remember what he asks him but Thomas Hayden Church's response is just go and it goes on forever yeah Yeah. so long yeah um but i think tempo that strange mix of light and darkness that tempo brings i think it accomplishes a lot of things because it fits the off-kilter tone of the movie Mm because i think the movie is the like the play i think it's designed to be a little shocking a little Mm -hmm. bit like absolutely yeah i didn't really know it was going to go in this direction you don't put you don't put you don't do that to a drumstick in a norm in an india you don't see that happen in the mcu sure yeah yeah (laughs) and I also think it kind of makes viewers like Dottie while also being kind of intrigued by her and the kind of contradictory nature of her. Like, mm-hmm. I do think you like Dottie. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And uh, I think, whereas you laugh with Dottie, but you're laughing at the and other cars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so you're kind of, but with Temple, you're kind of like, yeah, the pre- I like her presence, but also what's her deal? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I, I think the light and dark kind of makes sense at the end of the movie for what we learn about Dottie's past. And as we learn about her hopes in life, because you really learn over the course of this movie how despicable the family is. Like, killing their own blood, pimping out their own blood. Mm. Dottie tells the story also to Joe of how her biological mother tried to suffocate her when she was a baby. Mm. And um, so Chris has a dream early on of Dottie naked. And I think it's suggested subtly over the course of the movie that he harbors incestuous feelings for her. Yeah. That he might have acted on Mm. in the past. She tells that story about him lying on her to kind of comfort her yeah 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 um which seems a little loaded considering that dream early on 
And um, but I think despite all that negativity, I feel like there's this optimistic side of Dolly where she pictures a better life for herself away from this family. Mm-hmm. And I, I think because Joe, despite his side hustle, seems a lot more kind of cultured and civilized at first than Ansel or Chris or Sharda, yeah. she sees <laughs> him as the way out. And I think that's why she sort of falls for him. Mm-hmm. But I think in that final scene where Joe is being so horrible and cruel to Charlotte, um, Dottie realizes that for all those kind of smooth talk and he's no better. Yeah, yeah. And it's not soon after that that Dottie grabs a gun, you know, spoilers, shoots a bunch of her family. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I think that scene represents her kind of like taking control of her life. And, yeah. you know, her family saw his property that they could give to another man in lieu of money. It's clear Joe also sees Dottie as his property and I think that ending where she reveals she's uh, pregnant with Joe's kid mm. as she puts her finger on the trigger of the gun that she's pointing at Joe, who, even though he's being threatened, is smiling like a madman yeah. because he's going to be a daddy. <laughs> it's the best smile. Um, I think that's Dottie like, on the cusp of a life free from all these toxic people. She might even get to raise her own better family yeah, yeah. by herself. But it cuts to black and we're not quite sure mm. if um, she gets it. But at least she's trying. Exactly. You know? The Podcast Studios is the home of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It's where lots of our shows are recorded, and we work on editing, promotion, videos, live shows, and lots more. As a podcast production company with three state-of-the-art studios for audio and video in Dublin city centre, we can work with you to tell great stories in a professional and engaging way. From government organisations to charities, arts groups to international brands, entrepreneurs to hobbyists, we've worked with everybody, and we can help you to get the word out. Whether you need studio time, you're hosting a live stream or webinar, or you need support with editing or marketing, we can tailor a package for you. For more info, head to thepodcaststudios.ie. I know that fates are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I know that face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc., all for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. We move on to Magic Magic. Sure. Juno Temple plays Alicia, an unstable insomniac on holiday in Chile whose confusion between reality and dreams isn't taken seriously until it's too late. Alicia, this is Frank. Alicia, you made it. This is my baby cousin from California. Is this your first time in South America? Um, it's my first time outside of the US. Oh. <laughs> How long have you been in Chile? Longer than I expected. From one to ten, how much do you like him? I don't know. We just met. How much do you like her? Hmm. Ten, eleven. Yeah, true. True. Yes. Uh, the cast also includes Emily Browning and Michael Sarah, who, yeah. if like. 
Brink. Every, <laughs> as Brink, yeah. yeah. He had me on the Brink. Um, every time he sh- shows up in a movie that's not a comedy, um, he creeps me out. I, but I think intent, I think he's good in the movie. I, but it, it's a particular kind of weird, creepy that you're like... I'm not even sure if he's meaning it. Like, I'm not sure if he's trying to like actually intensely like creep someone out. Yeah, it's just yeah. like his presence is very odd. Yeah. yeah. So it's in fair, like if I was stuck with fucking worm man Michael Sarah for a weekend, my <laughs> mental health would really suffer too. Yeah. Um, no, I'm sure he's lovely. He's a lovely guy in real life. But the characters <laughs> he plays outside of comedies are like, oh my god. Get and even sometimes away from in me. comedies, like this is the end. Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah. yeah. But it, it, even the, even then. It's like, oh... It's so heightened. Yeah. He is intentionally an asshole in this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to check this out because it was written and directed by Sebastian Silva who made Tyrell, which mm. I watched for this in our Christopher Abbott episode. And I, th- I thought it was one of the best discoveries of a movie I made through the, the podcast. And it's similar to Magic Magic. That, it, like, th- that movie centered on this man who spends a weekend with his best friend, but also his best friend's other friends who he hasn't met. And for various reasons, he struggles to gel with these strangers. Mm. And I know on the surface that sounds very mundane, but the way that movie is so intimately shot and its emphasis and kind of astuteness on capturing moments of awkwardness or moments of microaggression made it feel incredibly tense. And I think Magic Magic shares a lot of DNA with Terrell in that it's also about an outsider trapped with a person they thought they knew, but maybe don't really. In mm. you know, the case of Magic Mac, it's a cousin, the character Sarah, played by um, Emily, Browning. Emily Browning. An actress I like. Yeah, I like she's her too. Good. Yeah, she's really good. Yeah, um... It's also about a person being trapped with strangers who may or may not have the outsider's best interest in heart. Like, mm. that's kind of the, the mystery of this movie, I think. Yeah. But I think unlike Terrell, Magic Magic tries to fit that feeling of awkwardness into, like, a genre framework. Like, it's more overtly gesturing to being a horror thriller. One of the characters is into hypnosis, and there's this pretty creepy scene where Juno Temple's character is, like, put into a trance state and becomes, like, susceptible to yeah. people around his commands. So the whole movie builds to this shamanic ritual involving, like, communicating with the spirit world. But while I think those elements are interesting in the moment when you're watching it. I found them a little underdeveloped and yeah, I, I agree. Unnaturally yeah. bolted onto the narrative. Cause, cause I, and I think that the story of Alicia, this woman who travels to Chile as a way to, of trying to make herself feel better after struggling with her mental health. But upon arrival, gradually begins to feel worse because of the way she's treated by those she's staying with. Yeah. And you, you can't tell if they're intentionally trying to hurt her for whatever reason, or I think that's the movie, you know? Yeah. What do you yeah. think? Yeah. I, Enjoyed it uh, as a psychological kind of drama thriller, maybe, but I feel like it shouldn't be on Shudder, mm. um, which is what a lot of comments say on like a lot of sh- uh, movies that are on Shudder. It's like, oh, it is good, but it shouldn't be here. It shouldn't be here. Yeah, it's it's got something more of a, more of a thriller. Yeah. yeah, there's something there, but I feel like it shouldn't be there. Yeah, because yeah. it, it got positive reviews when it came out, but I, I I did see a review in the Independent that was like a three star review, but it said like neither perceptive enough to be an art house or scary enough to be a proper horror film. And I think that's kind of accurate. Yeah, and I think, yeah. um, in retrospect, I like the ending of Magic Magic. It's like, it's pretty haunting, but without spoiling, it leaves matters really up in the air. And mm. I, I imagine hardcore fan, horror fans watching it and just flipping the table yeah, in their sitting yeah, room, yeah. being like, that's it, yeah, <laughs> come on. Yeah. It yeah. I think it would have been better had he flipped one way or the other. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because yeah, I think either you make a horror movie that finds a way of... Um, feeling that awkwardness in a more sort of like heightened setting mm, yeah. or environment or you just do the drama yeah because yeah. like it would have been better had she murdered them all <laughs> what I'm trying to say. But, um, gradually over the course of the movie starting with Michael Cera <laughs> really an ending, to the issue of Michael Cera and, and ending with him as well yeah <laughs> she goes back yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah <laughs> i just think like it doesn't need the added question of like did the hypnosis unlock something in alicia's mind like is she possessed like because you don't get answers for it yeah, you know? yeah and um tarell doesn't have any horror elements and i think hones in on the most interesting parts of magic magic that like hell is other people <laughs> yeah yeah and gives it the space it deserves i believe it's a much more successful movie for it but like it's not to say magic magic isn't worth watching and i um I think mainly because like Temple is so good, like in a rare leading role for her, that like yeah. I think people should check it out if they're yeah. kind of curious. Yeah, for sure. um, she not only makes you believe that her character is inching closer and closer to a nervous breakdown, but you you really feel her trying and failing to suppress any negative emotions she has while she's around her cousin and her cousin's yeah, friends. Yeah. Like so there's that scene early on when Alicia's in the shower, Temple's character, and is talking to her cousin Sarah. And she's getting ready in the bathroom. And the camera's on Sarah in the scene. And it sounds like a casual conversation. But you hear Alicia say, like, I'm sorry my mom was so pushy about me coming here. I guess I, I just needed a break. And as she says that, the camera, like, slowly pans over into the shower. And you see that Alicia's, like, sitting down with her head in her lap. Yeah. And it's like it's like someone trying to calm themselves after feeling anxious. Mm. And then Sarah leaves. And the camera just sits with Temple's Alicia. And Temple's doing this face that seems, like, so taunted. Mm and so obviously you know the character is feeling fragile by the time she's arrived in Chile and has been like struggling but is trying to hide from her companions the extent mm. of her struggles and you really feel Temple's Alicia try at least in the early portions of the movie to, to have fun mm. you know yeah. with the people she's with but a lot of the time she just can't connect and yeah. Or she doesn't feel comfortable because she keeps having these weird interactions. Like, did they stress you out? Because they really, a lot of that stuff. Where yeah, I, yeah. I have some examples over here. Like, she's introduced to Michael Sarah's character Brink and they hug and he says like oh you smell like American shampoo and she says oh is shampoo different here and he's like is it different here <laughs> and then says something in Spanish and they all laugh yeah. and she just says no idea yeah, yeah. yeah her being kind of isolated and not getting um, because she doesn't speak the language is like a big thing in this movie yeah yeah really funny intense scenes between Alicia and Sarah's boyfriend's sister Barbara mm. who's played by Catalina Sandino Moreno she's, the, she's great in this movie yeah she's the, yeah. she's Oscar nominated for that Maria Fuller Grace do you remember yeah. that movie yeah but um I love how she's always like <sighs> she's real kind of like I'm a five years older than yeah. you and like I'm, I'm really mature and like yeah. these are so immature or whatever yeah but um they're road tripping and the car only plays CDs so Barbara asks Alicia to pick a CD and Alicia's like I don't really know much about music and Brink is like oh be adventurous yeah. and Barbara's like whatever you find don't worry so Alicia picks a random CD and it's like this 30s jazz album. Yeah, and yeah. immediately they're like, seriously? <laughs> and Brink says, oh, great pick, Alicia. Yeah. And then the CD gets jammed. <laughs> they can't take it out. <laughs> and they're just like, listen. And like, there's a really, one of the funniest things in the movie is they leave the car and then like they have this kind of like sojourn. And then like, just when you've forgotten about the whole CD thing, they get back in the car and the same song starts playing. <laughs> um, but then later, like, Alicia is asking Barbara about the, the Mapuche, which is this indigenous group of people in Chile. Mm. And Barbara says very intensely back, yeah, white people in this country have totally fucked them up. Which I'm sure is true. But it sounds like she's blaming Alicia yeah. for it. And Alicia just goes, oh. And Temple does this thing where she makes herself look smaller by just, like, putting her head down. And it's like she retreats into herself, which is mm. really good. And, um... There's also other, like, um, later Alicia goes to cuddle this dog before realizing it's humping her leg. Mm, and then yeah. Brink sees it and just keeps bringing it up and laughing. Like, I found all that stuff very true to life. And, like, slight spoilers, like, not, not too in-depth, but, like, Sarah's friends, like, obviously, the Sarah character Brink is weird, for sure. Mm. But none of them are villains. No. You know, no. like, they're, they're revealed to be just kind of maybe flawed, selfish mm. people who don't put themselves in Alicia's shoes enough. Yeah, yeah. And... Also, there's points where we see that Alicia has trouble distinguishing from reality and what's in her head. So maybe as a viewer, we're seeing these interactions as more awkward 
than perhaps they were more cruel to yeah, Alicia. Yeah. But if you take those moments as real, like I think those interactions are innocuous enough to be real life, but are uncomfortable enough that you believe that a person like Alicia that was already feeling kind of emotionally raw, that they can make her doubt herself and her surroundings and make her negative emotions sort of spiral. And I think you watch in Temple's Forms in all asylum moments over the course of the movie, her reactions to things like her mass fall and any effort she was trying to make to shield these people from how she's reefing starts to fade away and she starts to feel worse and i think that without spoiling like when temple has to go full like a woman under the influence it's really palpable and upsetting yeah, yeah. i just think the movie around it is kind of a little bit vague and doesn't really know where to what to do with that absolutely yeah but, i um, agree but um that's got something yeah it does yeah we move on to another kind of more overtly horror movie yeah unsane yeah Juno Temple plays Violet, a patient in the same mental health uh, institute as Sawyer Valentini, <laughs> played by uh, Great name. the Crown's Claire Foy. Sawyer has institutionalised herself voluntarily to escape her stalker David, played by Joshua Leonard, and things only get worse from there, basically. Oh, uh, what? You think you're too good to talk to me now, Alison? Oh, my name's not Alison, but yeah. Yeah, I am too good to talk to you. Okay. Hey, bitch! Listen, when you fall asleep, I'm going to cut your hair off. All of your hair. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. With what? They let you anywhere near sharp objects? I doubt that very much. Oh, God, you're scaring me to death, you f- mental patient. <laughs> I'll be thinking about you when I'm back in my own bed, in my own house, getting ready to go to my own job. What do you think of this? I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it's good, isn't yeah. it? Um, we've heard a lot of Soderbergh lately on the show. Yeah, we have actually, yeah, this year oh, overall. Because yeah. Cheadle, we did the Oceans movies mm. and No Sudden Move, I watched. and Yeah. Yeah, Logan Lucky. Logan Lucky, well. yeah. Um, yeah. I'll let you take the lead on this one because you're the Soderbergh. I, spe- I, I kind of want to, because I, I think this movie is like a very fun throwback 90s throw, but it was mm, also interesting in yeah. the context of his career because like, I find him one of cinema's most interesting contemporary figures because like, he played such a pivotal part in the formation of that kind of new American indie cinema of the 90s with sex, like and videotape and then found huge mainstream success in the year 2000. He released two Oscar-winning movies and, with Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. Mm. And then the next year, followed him with Ocean's Eleven, this huge commercial hit that launched a franchise. But what I've always appreciated about him is that like he's never fully let go of his indie roots. So I'll make these more mainstream movies where he'll collaborate like Matt Damon or George mm. Clooney or... Chang Tatum, who's kind of his current muse, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll also make these... Ex- he never really let go of Matt Damon, though. That is why he yeah. shows up in Unsane. Yeah. For a cameo that I don't think entirely works. Because yeah. <laughs> it kind of doesn't give him enough to do. And you're a bit like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's a bit distracting <laughs> yeah, from the... Because yeah. oh, everyone else is such a, like, a well-cast character actor. Mm, yeah. But, um, but he'll make like these mainstream movies, but then also do these experimental things like Full Frontal, which is this very meta movie about the industry that was made for two million and shot in digital cameras in 2002 before like anyone was really using them to make yeah. mainstream movies. Before that was the norm. Um, he made this fascinating film in 2005 called Bubble, which centers on these like three low-paid doll factory workers, one of whom is murdered. That's this creepy little movie made with non-professional actors and is and very cheaply like it's got like a mumblecore vibe. Yeah, he also made... <laughs> I can I can I can clown with a mumblecore once in a while. Some yeah. I like Cold Weather, great little mumblecore movie. Um, that's a free recommendation for you out there. Um, he made as if, as if all our other recommendations aren't. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, he made um, the girlfriend experience, the movie mm. where he cast Sasha Gray, who's a porn star at the time as a high-end Manhattan escort working during the financial crisis of 2008. So, like, he he's always quite daring in the stories yeah. he takes on and the way he makes movies and distributes them. And 
I think what's interesting about Unsane is that I think he sees him using techniques he would typically deploy on an experimental indie project to make what's a pretty mainstream movie. Like, this is the type of woman in peril B-movie, like Double Jeopardy. They would have played multiplexes in the 80s and 90s, but back then it would be shot for 20 million with big movie stars, whereas Soderbergh has done it here for 1.5 million on an iPhone. Yeah. With a star, a star in the rise in Claire Foy, Mm. but not a huge star, and then mostly a cast of like lesser known but well-chosen character actors yeah yeah which i think is cool and um, what do you think of the iphone here unsettling right because yeah. <laughs> i don't think it's always aesthetically pleasing mm. but i i do think like it captures depth and light in a different way to yeah. a typical camera and that adds to the movie's unsettling quality like everything is just like a little bit wrong yeah, yeah. and um it's like the fluorescent lights are just too yellow or something yeah like that. and it's even before she is in the the yeah. psychiatric hospital yeah. like yeah. just when she's around her work and i think because the iphone is like obviously a lot smaller than a mainstream uh, than a normal film camera yeah that like it can get really close to actresses faces mm. and that adds to like the intimate quality of this movie um like being trapped kind of you know yeah and um i think it's a good screenplay as well in that like it's that kind of classic b-movie thing it's like the hero says i'm not crazy like uh, why won't anyone believe me and the viewer is kind of like should i believe her yeah you know, like, can i trust her but um I also think um, it has story elements that are really timely in that like it centers on a woman suffering abuse from a man whose cries for help lead her to be dubbed delusional and also centers on this woman's efforts to expose that man for what he is. And I think that resonates in a post Me Too era like a little more. And yeah. also the movie's paranoia about like the healthcare system and insurance companies and social media. I, I said his presence is a little distracting, but Matt Damon does show up for a flashback as a cop who warns Sawyer about the dangers of Facebook. Um like that all feels kind of of the moment yeah. and um i think the movie does come a little far-fetched and unbelievable in its climax where the kind of coincidences begin to stack up and like certain actor characters act in a silly way but there's a lot of smart things in this movie yeah you know? yeah um watching a temple though um yeah i thought she was good she's actually it's weird that she's the only genuinely crazy person in the main cast right yeah yeah because yeah. obviously there's this, like claire foy who isn't crazy uh or maybe well isn't crazy at the start anyway sure. um and who know may have been driven to paranoid delusions by the end we don't know um and then there's SNL's Jay Farrow um playing a guy who a journalist who's disguised himself as a patient in the facility in order to expose expose their insurance scam scheme yeah. um whereas um Violet Temple's character is like is actually you know genuinely insane uh, or unsane mm. yeah like comparing her with Sawyer Claire Foy's character is like Sawyer might be paranoid but she has like logical, rational reasoning for That's it. it yeah. uh, whereas Violet's own condition and the conditions of her treatment, in uh, inverted commas, uh, are what cause her to lash out. Mm. Yeah, and it shows like her. Uh, I think Juno Temple's like care for her craft in that she's like she's kind of made a bit of a habit out of playing women that, on the surface, they may seem like initially kind of maybe unlikable or unsympathetic or irritating. There's always like a good reason for their behavior, whether it's internal. Uh, such as in the case of uh, Alicia uh, or Dottie um, well not Dottie Alicia um, or externally in the case of Lola yeah sure yeah um, I just love that first scene where Sawyer and what's her character's name in this movie again Violet Violet yeah yeah the scene where Sawyer and Violet um, meet for the first time and she immediately like comes up to Sawyer and says like hey Alison how's your baby <laughs> then Sawyer ignores her and then Violet like takes out the tampon she was using and throws it at her and yeah. then Sawyer rightfully is annoyed about that and Violet's like hey when you fall asleep I'm gonna cut your hair 
I'm gonna cut your hair off. <laughs> Sarah's like, oh yeah, they let you near sharp objects? I doubt that. And Violet then reveals she's hiding a shank. <laughs> and the reaction of Carrefour, she's like, oh my god. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> and she continues to call Sawyer throughout the movie Allison. Um <laughs> And yeah, but I think like Violet is in a mo- in a lot of the movie in the background, mostly serving as kind of like another antagonist to Sawyer. Yeah. Like um, there's another part where Violet accuses Sawyer of stealing from her and starts like pushing her and Sawyer just clocks her. But um, when I was watching, I was thinking that like if I wasn't following Juno Temple's career when this movie came out, because I think she's pretty cool. Mm. But um, And if I didn't know she was in the movie, I might not have realized it was her because she's pretty unrecognizable with the kind of thick southern accent and the dreaded hair. Yeah, yeah. And um, well, I'd love to see like behind the scenes footage of Soderbergh saying like cut and Foy and Temple just reverting to their like, natural British accents. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, really? <laughs> um, but um, it's almost like because Soderbergh kind of uses like non-professional actors like in things like Bubble mm. I was kind of thinking like yeah if I didn't know Temple I might have thought he'd cast like a non-professional actor yeah because it's um, it's not showy she's she's sort of it just kind of like exists to kind of add texture to the movie yeah until the climax where she kind of is brought into play yeah yeah you know but yeah. like it, it isn't too it's not it's not glamorous at mm. all and she, it's never really like a moment where you're kind of like oh I get Violet's deal yeah yeah but then again I think it's impossible not to feel a bit for Violet at the end of the movie. And I like, I'll try not to spoil her fate, but like, you know, she spends so much of the movie being antagonistic to Sawyer, but I was pretty sad though about her um, character's outcome because you start to wonder how much of what Temple's character Violet does to Claire Foy's character Sawyer over the course of the movie is the result of whatever mental illness she has. Mm. Um, And I think this is a little bit of a stretch, but is there like a chance that Violet was once like Sawyer and the psychiatric hospital has caused or exacerbated her I'd mental say, I'd illness. I would say it's definitely exacerbated her, her mental illness. Um, but whether she was once like Sawyer is, I don't know, up for debate, I guess. Sure, yeah. yeah. And um, I think it's hard not to feel for Violet when um, she's with David and Sawyer in the padded room because like, her crying and the screaming is very distressing. Then there's that moment where Sawyer is part of her ruse to escape, acts very tender to Violet. And you, you briefly see kind of a more calmer, like softer side to her. But that's like quickly snatched away with Sawyer um, making her escape during which Violet sort of gets thrown to the wolves. Mm. And um, like you understand why Sawyer needed to get Violet involved with her plan to escape. But um, I must say, Sawyer kind of did Violet dirty. Yeah. You know? Just to see two queens pitted against each other. Yeah, justice for Violet. Mm. Yeah. But um, yeah, I really like this movie. It's streaming on Netflix now. Unbelievable last shot. Yeah. Really good cut to credits, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just in terms of what's next for Temple, she's you mentioned at the beginning, but she's in that series about the making of The Godfather that just came out in Ireland on Paramount Plus, The Offer, which I would totally watch. Um, it was just announced that she's going to be in the fifth season of a show I really like, Fargo, which just feels right mm, because yeah, like, I, it I, does, I, that yeah. show attracts serious actors with great comic timing. Mm. So it it almost feels weird she hasn't been in it already. True. Yeah. And obviously Ted Lasso will be returning for its third and I think its final season. So exciting stuff on the horizon. Mm. Speaking of the horizon. Um, this is going to be our last episode for the summer. Mm. Oh. Um, We're hitting the beach. Andrew and I are going to take some time off to rest and also prep for who we want to cover in the future yeah. and what guests we might maybe like to have on the show. Yeah. But we will be returning in September. But uh, I just want to thank everyone who has listened to the show today. You know, I love doing it. I love doing it. Andrew loves doing it. And um, we hope people get something out of it and enjoy yeah. it, you know. And um, so rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. If you have a friend who's really into the movies... Why not recommend them our show? Or if you're really into the movies yourself. Yeah, you, well, I'm sure they're listening. Already. That's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're really into the movies yourself. 
Send, send listen, us an email. Listen again. Yeah, yeah. send us an email at iknowthefacepod.gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> um, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you love I Know The Face, please consider joining Five Year Month us to Heads of Plus. That's what people can do if yeah, they like the show. You, if you really like the show, pay us. Hand over pay us your money. hard-earned cash. <laughs> um, you know, at Heads of Plus, you can find a special exclusive bonus episodes of the show. We've done multiple available now, including a few in our Leading Legend series, focusing on A-listers, like we've done Brad Pitt. Kristen Stewart. Denzel Washington. Jodie Foster. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can check me out at joe.e. See you later, Bye bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.